expired. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of being here this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for making times like this just times to rejoice and to reflect on. It's getting towards the end of the year, Father. We're just so grateful for all that you've done for us, that you continue to do for us in this beloved congregation that you set apart from eternity past. We pray for those that can't be with us. We pray for those struggling with illness or the potential of it. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that before it's too late, they be humbled and receive saving faith. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this of rejoicing a reality for each one of us to enjoy. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. I hear a little echoey, echoey. You guys hear that? Is it better now? Todd, can you, I get this like ringing. Check, one, two, check, one, two, check. That's better. Okay. Okay, so Proverbs 17, Wisdom, Part 41. Uh, I was As I was preparing this morning at about 4 a.m., uh, I was thinking about the fact that it's the holiday season and we're coming into Thanksgiving and Christmas and I was particularly thinking about Christmas um, and also this theme of peace that's been top of mind for us uh, as of late from this pulpit and it was funny because like I said it was really early in the morning and I just began humming the lyrics to this song, I can't sing them, especially not tonight, so you'll have to imagine the melody. Hark the herald angels sing. Uh, hark the herald angels sing. This is the first uh, stanza. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth. So I was thinking about Christmas and this song, you know, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Remember, it's Reconciliation means to restore friendly relations, to restore peace with the one that we were set at enmity with at the fall. So when I think about Christmas, that's what Christ did. He came to reconcile uh, us to our Father in heaven. And so peace on earth, God and sinners reconciled. And then skipping all the way to the end of the song, close to the end, is this stanza. Hail the heaven-born, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness. Light in life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. And I just want to comment, I love that title, the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. And of course, that's a biblical reference. Why don't we look at it? Go to Isaiah 9, verse 6. Isaiah 9 verse 6. So this is basically from this famous song, this Hark the Herald Angels Sing, um, this line where it says the Prince of Peace. So this is a borrow from Holy Scripture, Isaiah 9, verse 6. Isaiah 9, 6. Obviously this was prophetic at the time it was written. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son, uh, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So there it is, you see? Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So up here on the board, what stuck out to me in that song, and then of course in this passage of Holy Scripture up here on the board, the Prince of Peace. This is Jesus Christ's title, uh, one of several. It tells of the nature of his rule. He's the prince, he's the ruling force of peace. It tells of the nature of his rule that peace is fruit of it. And this makes total sense given peace is specifically identified as fruit of his spirit in Galatians 5.22, for example. Again, Prince of Peace. This is his title, and it tells in the nature of his rule that peace is fruit of it. And it makes total sense when you think about fruit of his spirit. So this is such a wonderful way to think about our Lord, especially at this time of year. Um, while so many people are about to teach their poor kids that, you know, Christmas, you know, Christmas is about presents. They're going to just, you know, crush their kids with presents. And it's always the message that you're sending. You have to think about that. What do you, what's the message you're sending young people when you do this thing? You might say, oh, it's not about the presents. But isn't it though? But isn't it though when they have like 5,200 presidents, presidents under the tree? Isn't it though? The Holy Spirit is reminding this congregation that it's about his peace on earth. And it's about his work to restore that peace. It's about his work to restore that peace between his sheep and his Father in heaven. It's about his gospel making it all possible. That's what this season should be about. That's what Christmas is about. It's about all of that. It's from, the, it's, a, it's from the Prince of Peace himself. So just a side thought that I thought I'd share with you. Um, here's a passage that speaks about this topic of peace that we had on Sunday. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. So we're getting back to point of review now from Sunday. Can you guys hear my voice all right? Okay, good. First Thessalonians 5.23 Now, we read this on Sunday, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Isn't that wonderful? The God of peace sanctifies. 
you can see the, again, I said this on Sunday, I think the proximity of the two things, peace and sanctification, and that he's the God of peace. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So if you think about what sanctification is by definition, it means to be made more like him, to be made more holy. Well, if he's the God of peace, when you become more like him, then you get more peace. So you can even see how these two things are so close. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so we might, you know, capture all of this up here on the board. The God of peace, to abide in the sphere of God, is to abide in peace. Remember all that the Spirit taught us recently about sanctifications, the experiential sort of it, where it's a movement to the sphere from an experience perspective. And so to abide experientially in the sphere of God is to abide in peace. And so it's the, the God of peace, of all peace, that sanctifies us towards himself. So inside of that sphere, um, the goings-on, if you would, the, you know, I don't, don't want to say the machinations, but the, the movements, um, there's an economy in there. If you think about God's sphere, the way he desires to do things, there's an economy, there's movement, there's merchandising or trading, we might say. Um, as the Spirit pointed out on Sunday, we live uh, in God's economy. That's the intention. Where grace is the currency. In God's economy, grace is the, cousin, uh, the currency as opposed to creature credit. God's grace, as we learned on Sunday as well, is always efficacious, which means that it provides us with peace. It always is, it's always effective. It always does the job it came to do. And if the job here on the table is to sanctify, and to be sanctified is to be uh, made more like God, who is the God of peace, then the effectiveness of grace means that we get more peace. So think about what the Spirit taught us on Sunday about grace. If God's grace is the only way we can ever be sanctified, and that's a true statement, which, according to Holy Scripture, is the only way we can hope to find peace, which is another true statement, and along with love, let's say, peace is the ultimate prize, experientially speaking. I mean, if you could have anything in this world after love, wouldn't it be peace? Just peace of mind? Not be anxious not be worried, just, you know, peace of mind. I love, I have peace. What else is there after that? And so these things, these concepts, love and peace, they're constantly brought up in Holy Scripture. And it's not a mistake that it's the Prince of Peace. It's not a mistake that it's the God of Peace that sanctifies us. It's because that's the direction that we go as we're sanctified. But we have to take grace in. Again, uh, this would beg then, you know, what's the obvious thing to do then? If those are the facts on the table, what's the obvious thing to do? Well, we find the answer in the Bible, of course. Go to Hebrews 4.16. 
Hebrews 4.16. What's the obvious thing to do? If grace is the only way we can be sanctified, and it's the only way we can hope to be sanctified, um, it's the only way we're going to find peace, then what do we do? What should we do? Hebrews 4.16. Because I want peace. I don't know about you. I want the fruit of the Spirit. I don't want to just, I don't want to just be, and I don't mean to insult God, but I don't want to just be sanctified for the sake of being sanctified. I do want the peace. I do want the love. I do want the fruit of being sanctified. So how do we do that? Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there's this sort of dual going on, this dual concept of drawing near and finding grace. Up here on the board, finding grace. When you find grace, you find peace. Your life becomes a testimony to God's grace, even to unbelievers. And that was a point of emphasis in the last few messages. That, you know, remember it started off as how do we see God? And how do others see God in us? And that was Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace. There's peace again, of course. With everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So there again you have holiness, which is basically sanctified, sanctification in view, and peace right next to it. So sanctification and peace, they're this way. They're intrinsic to one another. If you're sanctified, you get more peace. And it's all by grace. So when you find grace, you find peace. Your life becomes a testimony to God's grace, even to unbelievers. And uh, we need to think about this a little bit more here. I think the interesting thing about finding grace is that you, you don't find it just sitting around. Does that make sense? You don't just find it, you know, sitting on your couch or just being lazy. In other words, a, a lazy person, and I don't just mean physically, I mean lazy, you know what I mean. Um, the lazy person doesn't find grace. The lazy person doesn't, my hunch is that there are a lot of Christians out there that think just because God's grace is, you know, free, which is true, that it's easy. There's a lot of people out there that think just because the word grace engenders, you know, free, the concept of being free, they translate it wrongly into easy. I've taught this many times in the past, as you know. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that grace is easy. It's not. There's nothing in the Bible that says just because something's free, it doesn't mean that it's easy, strictly speaking. So to synthesize here, if we want peace, we must go boldly to the throne of grace. But doing so isn't necessarily easy. I mean, first things first, to go to the, the throne of grace, you have to what? You have to push you have to prioritize God in your life. You have to set apart time to read your Bible, 
to be in fellowship with him, to pray. The Bible says pray without ceasing, as in pray all the time. Pray without ceasing. You have to do something. You can't just be lazy. You don't just not pray, not read your Bible, not spend any time with him. I mean, quality time with him. And expect, you know, your, your, you know, your wheels to blow off your vehicle. You know, just to be, whoo, my word. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Here's an old, old principle I taught from this pulpit years ago up here on the board. Humility is aggressive. You might say, that seems like an oxymoron almost. It's not. It's not. Humility's not aw shucks. Humility is aggressive. doesn't mean you're elbowing people. <laughs> it means you're up here. You're aggressive. You want grace. That's what I mean when I write humility is aggressive. You'll do whatever it takes to get the grace. You see? And that's not a lazy attitude at all, is it? That's not a sit-back attitude at all. It's a... I want this thing. I want grace because I want peace. I want to be sanctified. I want love. I want the fruit of the Spirit. Patience, anybody? The big P. It's definitely one of the big P's in my life, right? Kindness, faithfulness, self-control, anyone? How about that? Self-control? I want those things. I want them as much as I can possibly get them. And I want, to be, I want to be aggressive about it with him. The Bible says go boldly to the throne of grace. That's not, oh, shucks, you know. Whoa. Whoa. Start singing Barry White, Brandon, huh? Hey, hey. Right? Go, go boldly to the throne of grace. That's not, oh, shucks. That's not kicking sand. Humility is aggressive. As the Spirit pointed out on Sunday, the parable of the persistent friend is Jesus' way of communicating this very truth to his disciples. Think about it. Think of the aggressiveness of the friend. Go to Luke 11.5. Luke 11.5. If you don't believe the point on the board, then maybe you'll believe Jesus. <laughs> okay. Luke 11:5. This is the parable of the persistent friend. And so, you know, remember what Jesus said to his disciples. He says, I no longer call you that. I call you friends. You're a friend of Jesus. Be persistent then. That's what the parable is all about. Luke 11:5. And he said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and I've given you the original language here. 
It always carries that word persistence with it, if you recall. Each of the Greek words here carries the, the concept of persistence. Seek diligently, seek persistently, and you will find. Knock diligently, knock persistently, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So just again, a recap up here on the board. Finding grace. When you find grace, you find peace. Your life becomes a testimony to God's grace, even to unbelievers. That's what we saw in Hebrews 12, 14. And then second point, humility is aggressive. It's persistent. Jesus Christ, we just read it in his parable. We just read it. Jesus Christ put a premium on persistence. And he's also the one, so he puts a premium on persistence. He says, I want you to be persistent. Persistent towards what? My grace. Okay? I want you to be persistent towards my grace. Up here in the board, he also said, John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So in one sense, he's saying, be persistent. In another sense, he's saying, I'm giving you my peace. You get the notion? He's saying, oh, you can have my peace, but you're going to have to come and get it. You're going to have to come get my grace. I'm gonna, I want you to seek so that you find. I want you to knock diligently. I'm not just going to bless your socks off because you even just go to church. I want you to be persistent. So Jesus has made it very clear to us that he wants us to have his peace. However, he also teaches us to be humbly aggressive about it. He wants us to be aggressive about it. And he's the one, I mean, he, we just read it. He said, seek diligently and you will find it. Up here on the board then, aggressive humility. And it's just a, an analogy. I was thinking about, you know, I want to eat, right? If you're hungry, you don't break into the bakery. You don't just smash the front window. That's wrong aggressiveness. You don't take what you think is yours to satisfy your supposed desire. Rather, you ensure you're among the first in line to receive your daily bread. That's right aggressiveness. There's a difference. You are aggressive to receive God's grace. You don't seize for self without regard for God's administrative will. I hope you get the analogy there. That's what aggressive humility means. It doesn't mean you just grab things. You, this isn't a big land grab. You don't smash through the front window, grab as many loaves of bread as you want, and take off. That would be your will. That's you smashing through. That's wrong motivation. It's wrong aggressiveness. You just show up. You say, I want it. You show up daily. 
for that bread, for his grace. That's right aggressiveness. In other words, your aggressiveness is reserved for your part in it. But you don't overstep your bounds. You show up to receive. And if one day he says you're not going to get bread, you're going to get pie, you say thank you very much. Today's a pie day. Next day you get some stew, I don't know, whatever. But you don't go grabbing. You don't break through the front window and grab whichever meal you want on that day. Hope that makes sense. In God's economy, the point we're fleshing out here is that grace is the currency. If you're going to exchange in this economy, it's by grace. So if peace is to be received, it has to be by the grace of God. God says that humility is the key to receiving this grace. Go to 1 Peter 5.5. 5. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. So we've still got that question. I want it. I, I know, I'm pretty sure you all want it. How do I get it? Do I just smash through the front door? No. Do I try to seize something as transcendent as peace? And then do I, you know, do as, like I said, I think it was a couple of Sundays ago, do I just try to, you know, I just say it enough in the mirror that I stop believing it? Did I say it out loud to others to convince myself? Or do I do as the Bible says? 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Here's the key, here's the key point. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want to give you this Greek word, ek kombutumai up here on the board for clothe yourselves, clothe yourselves, all of you, it says, with humility. It means to put on oneself as a garment. Uh, refers to the white scarf or apron of slaves, which was fastened uh, to the girdle of the vest. For example, gird yourselves with humility as your servile garb, garb excuse me, for example, by putting on humility, show your subjection to one another. This is what we do. We put on, we clothe ourselves with humility. It shows that we are servant of the Most High. We orient to Him. We do it His way. We're not a bull in a china shop. We're not just grabbing for things. We clothe ourselves with humility, and we say, whatever grace you want, Lord, give it to me. I want all of it. Again, clothe yourselves, all of you, verse 5, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So just think about it practically. When you put your clothes on in the morning, does it imply some form of labor? I think so. I mean, you don't just wake up and, you know, your clothes, well, some of you haven't washed your clothes in so long, you probably just go like that and they come running. But... <laughs> Right? You single men. It requires labor to put clothes on. I guess unless mommy's still dressing you, right? The clothing's free, let's say, in our analogy. The clothing's free. The clothing's free, and you're even guaranteed to look good. Um, but you still have to get dressed. You still have to put on. That's the command, right? Clothe yourselves. It, you have a part in this. You put on Jesus Christ, to borrow from another verse, but you clothe yourselves with humility. 
you still have to get dressed. There's still labor involved. The alternative, of course, is that you reject the free garb and get dressed in self-righteousness. You put on other garb, other clothing. You clothe yourselves some other way without the connotation of servanthood. Self-righteousness. And you labor for that outside of God's economy to your own exhaustion. And that should sound familiar too. That's another parable from Jesus. This one's called the parable of the wedding feast. Go to Matthew 22, verse 1. Matthew 22, verse 1. So it's just another parable. I mean, God says that he will clothe us, right? But you have to wear what he gives you. You have to wear what he gives you. Matthew 22, verse 1. This is the parable of the wedding feast. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But, here's the point, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment up here on the board. We call that false humility. He showed up he wanted the goodies, but he wasn't humbled. He was clothed in self-righteousness. He said, I don't need your grace. I just want the peace. I don't want your method of sanctification. I want to self-sanctify because I'm self-righteous. Therefore, I put on self-righteousness. I don't put on Christ. I certainly don't clothe myself in humility. I just want to look the part. You see? And so this person showed up, but he wasn't wearing the righteous garment that was given to him by grace. That's the parable. Up here on the board, false humility. We call that false humility. The guest in Matthew 22, 11 was a phony, basically. And most, I mean, our church is pretty small, so... It's not likely we're going to get phonies, but, you know, you can see them. They'll come in and out, and then they disappear, or, you know, they make a profession, and then they disappear. And so this is what's going on. This is a, a picture of a person who shows up, but is a phony. Wants the good stuff of what a pure religion can do for you, a godly religion, a sanctifying religion. Wants all the fruit, sees the, you know, 
They might read Galatians 5, 22 and 23 and go, oh, de I definitely want love. I definitely want peace. I definitely want kindness. You know, I want those things, but I'm too self-righteous to receive them by the grace of God. That's the guest here. He was a phony. He professed a desire to be a member of the kingdom, but refused to accept the grace of the king. And that's an insult. You want to come to my party and say, keep your gifts. I'm going to clothe myself. That's an insult to a king. There's some context there, too, that we, in our day and age, wouldn't really understand wholly. But I invite you to go look it up. So anyways, uh, he refused to accept the grace of the king. This is the root of self-righteousness. Clothing oneself instead of humbly receiving God's grace. That's the parable of the wedding feast. This person showed up, said, I want in, but I want to do it my way. I want to partake in the festivities. I want a free ticket to heaven, but I want to live my life self-righteously. I do not want to do as Jesus said. I don't want to deny myself. You see? I want to keep myself because I'm self-righteous, but I still want the goodies back. And God says, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The command is to clothe yourselves in humility. Verse 12, and he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. That's hell, by the way. Obviously, we're talking about believers and unbelievers here. He said, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. I, w I wonder how many pulpits actually teach that on a Sunday morning. Many are called, but few are chosen. Hmm. Of course, this is a reference to false profession of faith. For uh, our purposes, though, it's an indicator of false humility, which is another name for arrogance. Okay, back to 1 Peter 5, 5. Go there. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. This is where we started. So we just picked up what Jesus thought about false humility. Um, 1 Peter 5, 5. Which is why the Bible teaches us to clothe ourselves in humility. Likewise, you, a younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So it makes sense that it reads that way, knowing the mind of Christ. So we've got to get back to the point uh, we were reviewing from Sunday now. We live in God's economy. So again, let's take a step back or two. Think of the big picture that we live in God's economy. To be sanctified, in other words, to be brought experientially closer to God's own experience, we have to understand how this works. How do we be, how are we sanctified? How does sanctification work? Up here on the board, we just learned that we have a part in it, that we have to show up. 
Grace is free, but it doesn't necessarily say it's easy. God doesn't just give us what we need automatically. Rather, he asks us to journey through the process of figuring out for ourselves. Obviously, we have the Bible. We have God, the Holy Spirit, there to empower it. But nonetheless, we have to make day-to-day -day decisions about sanctification. Do I want it? Do I, want, do I aggressively want his grace? He asks us to journey through the process of figuring out for ourselves. In doing so, we arrive at our own convictions. Put away our fleshly tendency to, to reject his thoughts and his ways and are sanctified. That's how it works. There's no shortcut, in other words. There's no arrogant way of getting around it. You have to do it his way. So the next time you ask yourself, you know, it's a fair question. Why am I not, you know, more sanctified? You might ask yourself, geez, I don't know, I feel like I'm stuck. Why am I not more sanctified? Consider the point on the board. Consider the command to go boldly to the throne of grace. And consider Jesus' promise to give us his peace. It's not like it's not there. It's totally free. But it's not necessarily easy. You understand? It's not easy. Some of it can even be scary. I like the analogy they gave us on Sunday with the locomotive. You know, if that locom if you're my age, right? I mean, you, you're, that locomotive's got some steam to it, right? Say you're not even, you know, you're just new to the faith or something, or you're not say Getting off that bad, Larry, and it's doing 70 miles an hour with a ton of It's scary. You're looking, the ground's a blur. You want me to get off? Yeah. I want, you, I want you to take a leap of faith here. It's, it's, not, it's not easy. It's free, but it's not easy. So again, consider the point of the board. Consider the command to go boldly to the throne of grace. Consider Jesus' promise to give us his peace. And then add to that the following words of Jesus, which as we concluded on Sunday, encapsulate the concept of God's economy. Go to John 15, verse 7. John 15, verse 7 found a nice verse from the mouth of Jesus that talks about God's economy. Pretty much wraps the whole thing up in two verses. John 15, verse 7. But the very first word, the very first word is if. If, he says, you abide in me and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ooh, that sounds pretty powerful, doesn't it? Well, there's a big if there. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That's the economy. Ask whatever you want. Go boldly to the throne of grace in time of need. Orient your mind. We don't have time to get back into it, but the whole idea, the big if there, implies that your mind is oriented with his. Therefore, when you're asking for something, he goes, absolutely, that's what I want too, so let's get it to you. Here's some grace. Ask whatever you wish, and you, it will be done for you. And then God is glorified that you bear fruit in doing so. So at the start of class, we all pretty much agreed that we might ask God, hey, I'd like a little love. I'd like some love in my life. I'd love some peace in my love, in my life, excuse me. Well, when you have godly love and godly peace, you know what? It's evidence. It's evidence. It's 
fruit. You bear much fruit. When you ask in accord with his desires, that's the big if, when you ask in accord with his desires, you bear much fruit. And because it's godly fruit in this case, because you've gone humbly yet boldly, humility is aggressive, to the throne of grace, he's glorified. And oh, by the way, it proves to the world that you are disciples of Jesus Christ. That's, that's, the God, that's God's economy in a nutshell. That's it. That's the inner workings of God's economy. Grace is the currency, right? Ask. Ask what? Grace, of course. When you ask for something, you're asking him to grace you out because that's the only way you're going to get it. You don't exchange with God. It's not like you're on that works program. You ask him. You show up. I want it. I want more, Lord. I want more. Uh, he says, great. As long as your, your will is aligned with mine, I'll give you whatever you want. And you'll bear that fruit, and it'll prove, and I'm glorified, and it'll prove that you're disciples of my son. So that's the holistic viewpoint of God's economy, summarized in two verses. As we learned not too long ago, the mind of Christ is timeless, which means we see it in both the New Testament that we just read and the Old Testament. So on Sunday, and we'll go here shortly, we noted a practical example with Moses going boldly to the throne of grace. Go to Exodus 33, verse 12. Exodus 33, verse 12. It's the same mind, right? Jesus Christ, same yesterday, today, and forever. Same mind. He says, go boldly. Moses did. Moses didn't seem to have any problem going boldly. Exodus 33, 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know uh, whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. You see what Moses is doing? Sounds kind of bold, doesn't it? Well, the Bible does say go boldly to the throne of grace. As long as you're not out of line, he's apparently not saying anything that's out of line. God's not taking offense here. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. How about that? Ask and you shall receive. Okay, sounds like that really does work, as long as you're oriented to his will. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Up here on the board, John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses continues, you know, Please show me a glory. <laughs> you got to love these guys, right? He's, but he's not asking for anything that God's not willing to give him. So again, as we read on Sunday, God answers Moses' prayer there, um, and so on and so forth. But might we conclude, here's the point for this evening, 
Might we conclude up here on the board that Moses understood our previous principle up here on the board? That humility is aggressive? I mean, he seemed pretty aggressive to me. In the Bible, we just read that in what is it, 1 Peter 5 5 or James 4 6, that you choose. God gives grace to the humble. Humility is aggressive. God gives grace to the humble. Hmm. So if you want that thing that God gives to the humble, wouldn't you want to be like more humble? Wouldn't you, don't you want a, a humility that is aggressive so you can get more and more grace? Can you actually be greedy about God's grace in a strange way that isn't a true statement? And it's aligned with God because each time God blesses you out, he gets the glory. So if you think in godly terms, he really does want to grace you out. He really does want you to be aggressive with your humility so that you glorify him in time. And so I'm willing to bet that Moses understood the point on the board just based on the narrative we just read. That Moses understood the point on the board, that humility is aggressive. We also gleaned uh, for support of that the following from Holy Scripture up here on the board. We read Isaiah 55, 8 to 56, 1 on Sunday. And here's the summary of that. God's thoughts and actions are unnatural to us. They're not our thoughts. God's word never returns empty. It always accomplishes his will. And then third, we are encouraged to do righteousness for the sake of sanctification. And that was just sort of a capstone on what does God's economy look like? How do we function in God's economy? If we want something like peace, how do we get sanctified? What do we do? How do we receive grace? Because in God's economy, grace is the currency. God wants us to want it. God wants us to want it. Grace. As much of it as we can get. So in that way, I hope you appreciate what I'm trying to teach, is in that way we're greedy. We're like, just give me as much as you, give me. <laughs> give me grace. You, 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 you know, you show up, you're first in line at the bakery. Every morning, right on the spot, you know, they open up at 6, six o'clock, you're there at 6 o'clock. You're there at 5.59, every morning, rare, ready to go, give me some grace, give me some goodness, Lord. He loves it. And he blesses you out for being that person because God gives grace to the humble. And he loves it especially so because it brings glory to him. So the key to unlocking access to said grace, drum roll, humility. And I was thinking about that because someone, someone asked me recently with the teaching on sanctification and such, but how do I know that I'm, you know, being sanctified. How do I know that I'm being sanctified? Well, first, this is tantamount, saying the same thing as asking, how do I know if I've been humble and am being blessed by God's grace, not some counterfeit? That's the same idea. How do I know I'm being sanctified? It's tantamount to saying, how do I know if I've been humble and in being blessed by God's grace, not some counterfeit. And so the Bible doesn't just stop with the commands. It tells us up here on the board, this is how you know. 
fruit. There you go. Fruit. Fruit. For example, peace is fruit. That's how you know. Do you really have peace? Or do you have like a counterfeit peace? Do you just try to tell yourself you have peace? Or do you truly have peace? There is, there's so many litmus tests, I call them litmus tests, right? There are assayers terms, purific, you know, whatever you want to use. There's so many ways to test yourself to see if the fruit is genuine. And if you go to him in prayer, he will reveal it to you. He does it to me all the time, like, oh, yeah, you know, I've been this, you know, I'm, I'm loving this fruit. And he's like, that's not fruit. No, I want you to, I want you to stop there, champ, for a moment. <laughs> now that I've got your attention in prayer, I want you to think about what you're calling fruit. And so we have a discussion, right? We talk about it, uh, and he convicts me that I'm either right or wrong about a certain thing, right? So again, peace is fruit. In fact, peace is given prominence in the Bible as fruit of the Spirit. We noted that earlier. As proof of God's efficacious grace. So we have to ask the obvious question on the table, just to be thorough. In the absence of fruit, how would any human being ever know the difference between being sanctified and not sanctified. I mean, in other words, how would you know if there wasn't any fruit? I mean, if you never had any peace in your life, but yet the promise was for peace, how would you, I mean, or there was no, let's say there was no promises of any fruit. How would you ever know you're sanctified? It would simply be an academic thing. You'd say, I, I guess I'm sanctified. God doesn't leave it there. God says, oh, no, 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 no. If you're one of mine, this is, this is what blows some theology out of the water. If you're one of mine, you will bear fruit. Not maybe, not what's well, likely. No, 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 no. You will bear fruit if you're one of mine. I promise it because a good tree can only bear good fruit. So again, the question on the table, in the absence of fruit, how would any human being ever know the difference between sanctified and not sanctified? It's a good question. And it's the same question someone asked me recently. But there is a biblical response to this. And here it is. Without fruit, our proclamations of sanctification are vapid. Our witness is vapid. Our faith, then, is dead. If you have no fruit in your life, no godly fruit in your life, sanctification, poof, your witness, poof, your faith is dead. That's something we noted, I think it was last Thursday. Go to James 2.14. James 2.14. So the Bible gives us, time and again, this idea of fruit. And I love it. You know why? Because it's an evidence for us. I mean, is it fair to say that, I don't know, look back five years, right? Most, yeah, everybody in here has been in the Word of God for much longer than five years. The average is, geez, probably in the decades range, right? You can look back just five years. Think of the gospel reload back in 2015, right? October 2015, I think it was. Think back to that point. Think before that time to now. And think about what kind of fruit you bear now. 
what kind of peace you have, what kind of love you might have, what kind of patience you might have, what kind of self-control you might have, what kind of faithfulness you might have, what kind of kindness you might have now, even from five years ago. That's God saying, you see, you really do have fruit. Do you see? James 2.14. So James goes directly at this, dismantles the whole argument front and center. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm. It sounds almost like mockery considering we're talking about peace, right? Go in peace. Be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. Dead. That's why it's impossible, it's impossible for some of the theology out there to be true. There are whole theologies out there that say a person can be saved and never bear fruit. It's impossible. I mean, James literally says it straight up. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's the antithesis of being made alive in Christ Jesus. So he puts that to bed quite readily, quite easily, quite succinctly. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Throw that counterfeit in the garbage. If there's no fruit, and we're not talking about even you trying to prove something to anybody else. It's about what you have with Christ. Do, can you stand before God in prayer and say, I have fruit? Can you? And is he willing and, and, and will he uh, approve of that conviction? Will he say yes? Or in humility, will you accept it when he might say no? That's not good fruit. In any case, faith apart from works is useless. In God's economy, not the counterfeit one like, you know, some like to imagine, um, the pretend one. A believer bears fruit. That's an irrefutable fact. That's in Holy Scripture over and over again. Um, in God's economy, grace is the means to that end, not the will or the strategies of man. I think, let's see. Yeah, we'll go a little bit further. In God's economy, grace is the means to that end, not the will or the strategies of man. In God's economy, the substance or the fuel for our sanctification is the word of truth, as Jesus taught up here on the board, John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so that's where we get the primary basis of Learning the word of truth is the very first thing. The beginning of wisdom is what? Acquire it. This is wisdom. Right? 
Acquire it. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's the greatest look. That's why I don't understand. I think I'll end here. It's a, it's a really funny, funny thing. Um, for people to propose or pr proclaim, I guess is the better word, that they want to be sanctified, that they want the truth, that they want grace, that they want peace, that they want love, that they want patience, they want all the fruit of the Spirit. But they don't even, they don't even keep up with the Word of God. They're, they're not willing to do the one baseline thing, which is taking the Word of God. I mean, Jesus Christ literally says it straight up. You see it? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So without this, it's not going to happen. It's, it's, um, and, and the fruit is a thirst for it, right? A, a desire for that truth. A desire, a thirst, a hunger for the word. Because that lines up perfectly with sanctification. So a person who says, I'm really hungry, I want to be sanctified, but refuses or rejects the idea or doesn't put aside their lives or their other quote-unquote priorities to take in the word, then they're phonies. They're not in it. They're not there yet. I'm not saying they're not believers. They might just be, you know, wandering around a little bit. Right? Everybody grows up at their own pace. I'm not saying that, oh my goodness gracious, Barry, settle. Right? I'm not saying that they're not believers. I'm saying that there's something missing. If you really want to be sanctified, then Jesus said it best. Sanctify them in the truth. The word is the truth. We are out of time. Amen? All right, let's borrow it. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your truth, your word, the thing that sanctifies us, Father. Thank you for enlightening us with the truth, Father. Thank you for giving us wisdom on it, and thank you for convicting us of it, each to our own, Father, in our own time, in your timing, by your grace. We're so grateful for all that you do. We love you, Father. Again, we just pray that you sanctify us, continue to sanctify us in this truth. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.